Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Cass Rush. You may remember Cass from Trust Me, I'm Sick. She is a lupus patient. She's living in LA, and she's going to talk to us all about that life with lupus. So Cass, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to finally chat with you and have this longer discussion. Yeah. And uh, I figured we'd start at the beginning of the story. I would love for you to share with our listeners when and how you first realized that you were sick and how you've taken control of your health since then. So when I was 21, I was living in Minnesota with my ex-girlfriend. And while I was out there, I ended up catching pneumonia. And so when I caught pneumonia, I don't know how I caught it. I mean, I'm from LA. I was in Minnesota. I just chopped it up to being like a drastic weather change. Um, So that basically set off this, I guess, like chain reaction of just me not feeling well for a really long time. And I didn't have health insurance. Um, I didn't know at the time that, you know, being under 26 meant that I could be on my mom's insurance. Uh, I had like, no one tells you these things until you're like in the throes of needing healthcare. Yep. So I had no health insurance, but I was going to the emergency room. I want to say once every month. Wow telling them like, I don't feel well. I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. I just know like intrinsically that like something is wrong with me. And who, how many people told you it was all in your head? (laughs) Uh, uh, Every single one of them. A good number. But my iron level was super low. Mm. So they told me basically, um, your, just iron deficient. Here's some iron pills. You'll take them. You'll start feeling better. 
And then, and it is that it, simple for some people. For yeah, some people, I they mean, have an iron deficiency and it hits them that hard and they take the pills yeah. and they're good to go. Yeah. And then it got to the point where I had dropped 60 pounds in three months. Ooh. So. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then they kept telling me like, it's just iron deficiency. You're fine. It's iron mm. deficiency. You're fine. Well, and they were probably and, also in a body dysmorphia place. I imagine of being like, you look great. You've lost weight and doing that thing too. Right. Yeah. And most people were like, oh, you just went through a breakup. Mm. <laughs> like you're just sad. You're just like, depressed. Or maybe I was hospitalized for pneumonia a few months ago. <laughs> we should be looking more deeply into this issue. Wow. Yeah. So this was actually a full almost two years of me wow. doing this. Mm. So, well, maybe not two, maybe more, more like a year and a half mm. of me on and off telling these doctors something's wrong. I don't know. And then finally I had drastically dropped the weight, like yeah. to the point where I looked emaciated. Mm. And finally it had gotten to the point where I couldn't get up to go to school. Mm. I had reached this like three or four day period where the only thing that I could do was roll over, drink water, roll back over, go back to sleep, roll over, maybe use the bathroom if I could muster up the energy to go use the bathroom. But I was basically, all I had energy to do was drink water and sleep. You were bed bound. Yeah. So finally Mm. I called my mom and she was like, I'm just going to take you to Cedars. Mm. So So you went back home to LA at this point? Yes. So I had Mm. moved back home. And I had been going to Kaiser before that. And my Mm. mom was just like, I'm just going to take you to Cedars. We're just going to go to Cedars. Like, and basically everything after that, it like, it went from zero to 100, like super quickly. Mm. Um, Basically they told me I was on the brink of death. Wow. Um, They told me my hemoglobin was at a six, which if you know what that is, that's love. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a normal one is 13. Mm-hmm. So I was a little bit under half of what like my normal hemoglobin should have been. Uh, they couldn't explain what it was, what was going on. My mom basically told me afterward, the only reason that they had agreed to admit me was because they thought that I had something that hadn't even been discovered yet. Oh, wow. So they were more interested in you as, uh, as a like a science study. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Without so, without your prior permission for them to think of you in that way too. I mean, this is like it's like a Henrietta yeah, Lacks story that you're telling I right now. So I was so out of it. I really yeah. can barely even like tell you what happened. Mm-hmm. Everything sort of feels like it was an out of body experience almost. Yeah. Like it almost feels like I watched that whole well, thing. Well, you were halfway leaving your body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then I, one of the head doctors at Cedars Hmm. came to see me. And at this point I was seeing 20 doctors a day. Like they were literally bringing their whole classes of like interns Hmm. in to like talk about my case every morning. Yeah. So finally the head doctor comes in and like, I had gotten to a point where I'm tired of being stuck with needles. They even gave me a bone marrow biopsy, which mm-hmm. if you ever have seen one or had one, you know, they're super painful. Yeah. It's a spinal uh, tap, right? For the bone yes. marrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the doctors came in and she was just like, look, you're dying. Mm. 
And the only thing that I can tell you to do is to just keep trying because the number one way that, you know, this ends up getting the best of people is that they just give up. Mm. And she had my mom leave the room to have this conversation with me. Mm. And uh, finally, two weeks and a million thousand tests later, (laughs) they were like, oh, it's lupus. And then it just like my care dwindled down. Dropped off. I was only seeing like the one rheumatologist and maybe not even the attending, maybe just the the resident. So as soon as you weren't um, interesting to them anymore, yes. they stopped caring and showing up. Yes. Isn't they put that, me in I a mean, different it's part of the yeah. yeah. They put me in a different, on a different floor in a different part of the hospital and everything. Because it almost sounds to me like you got sick because doctors wrote you off. And then you got a diagnosis and they wrote you off again. Yes. Mm. So after that, they put me on antibiotics. I can't remember what the antibiotics were for. Yeah, interesting. Um, and like gave me the regular lupus pills, like the Celsep, the Plaquenil, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then I got home. And then <laughs> two weeks later, uh, my face had blown up. Right. You got the Mylar. Or yes, the, is, so, it, is that what it's called? The mylar rash? No, I mean like my face had blown up in an allergic reaction. Oh man. Oh, okay. So Whoa. it turns out that I'm allergic to Mepron, which is the antibiotic that they gave me. Wow. And also I have been having trouble breathing, like going mm. up the stairs. I was out of breath and it was my mom who noticed it. Mm. So she was like, are you, did you go, did you go outside? Did you go for a walk or something? I was like, no. She was like, you just walked up the stairs. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, you're like heaving. Like mm. you can't breathe. So then I went to the hospital. They put me on an oxygen tank. My oxygen was so low. And then they did a lung biopsy and come to find out I had a hemorrhage in my lung. Right. And so then I had to have chemo. Now, why would they treat that with chemo, the hemorrhage? So basically, the chemo was to stop the bleeding. Oh, that's so interesting. So it would have been a different dosage like, than when you have yeah, cancer, so when I imagine. You have like, uh, yes. So when you have like a, a blunt force like trauma, when you have any type of trauma, hmm. uh, they will, in certain cases, they'll distribute chemotherapy to you. So it was Rather cytoxin, than an invasive surgery. Right. Yeah. So it was the cytoxin. And it was for the bleeding and then for also the lupus flare that I was having. Right. Because okay. if I'm having a really, really, really bad flare, they'll put me on cytoxin. Mm, interesting. Wow. So we started off with that. It was a six-week mm. session of like intensive chemotherapy. Wow. So you were in the hospital for six weeks that whole time? I was the first time I was in the hospital for two months. Mm. And then the second time, it was only about a couple of weeks to a month. I don't even want to ask you what the bill looked like after that, because just I can actually tell you, that's a good story, too. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, hit us. Hit us with that story, because (laughs) this is one of those things, because you were also mentioning that you were like 21 when you first got sick. I was 22. 22, and didn't know know that you could be on your mom's insurance. No one's telling you Didn't know any of this. Didn't know any of this. 
So one day, um, so Cedars actually has a, a clinic hmm. that comes to their hospital every Monday, I believe, for uh, rheumatology. So it's a free clinic. That's the one that I was going to after they released me while they uh, figured out my health insurance and everything else because now they could declare me as disabled. So as I'm walking into the clinic to go to my appointment, this lady comes up to me and she's like, hi, you're Cassandra. I'm like, yeah. She's like, oh, I'm from the financial department of Cedars. We just wanted to speak to you about your bill. So I said, okay. So we walk into this tiny, tiny little room, like down a dark hallway. It was real like horror movie, like, so I should have known how this was going to go. Yeah, they set the scene for you. <laughs> so I sit down in the chair and she's talking to me. She's like, I just wanted to briefly go over your bill and then perhaps we could talk about payment plans. So I glance at the computer behind her and I see my name and I see a number and I'm like, let me stop you. Is that how much I owe you guys? And she's like, well, yeah, but I'm like, that says $550,000. Oh, my God. And she said, well, I'm like, I am 22 years old. Mm. I just got diagnosed with lupus. And I'm now disabled. You know that I have no health insurance. Mm. And you are going to sit here and look me in the eye Mm. and tell me that you could put me on a payment plan for something that I wouldn't be able to pay in five lifetimes in the situation that I'm in right now. And she's like, well, I'm like, so I'm, let's just, I'm going to just go. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to just go. Yeah, how else do you process that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to just go. It's just like, because it's like, you get hit with a chronic illness and they basically expect you to learn everything about this chronic illness and how to care for it and do all these things basically by yourself. Because let's keep it real. Most doctors like don't give a fuck. Excuse my language. Oh no, you're allowed to curse on the show. I highly okay. encourage it. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's keep it real. Like they, they don't give a fuck. And like in the eight years that I've been doing this, like I, just yeah. being a black woman in this system mm-hmm. is traumatizing. It's traumatizing. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about that for sure. We're going to yeah. get there. I mean, it, it, how, how did that all, like, did you, were you able to resolve that or is that a debt that's still hanging over your head? So what ended up happening was they retroacted, they did a retroactive like situation with my Medi-Cal. Okay. And they covered most of it. But well I, still owe, I still owe like $50,000. And this is something eight years later that's still... That's still, yeah, it's still there. So not only has your body betrayed you and put you in this situation where you are disabled and dealing with a health condition that no one's giving you a playbook for, but you're also eight years later still in major debt because of the way the system is rigged in this country. Yes. And that's a, that's terrorism. I mean, that's, you're yeah. living with a, a financial stress because of getting sick and there's no way you could have controlled that. Yeah. There, I mean, it's a debt that I have to pay that I didn't, like I had no choice. Like if yeah. I, the debt I have in school, like, yeah, that's like an insurmountable debt that mm. 
end up having to pay, but like, at least that's a choice that I made. Yeah. But like in this situation, this is like completely beyond my control. Yeah. Like this is like a, a God given situation that like, I couldn't say, no, I'm good. I won't get care for this because if I didn't get care for it, I would have died. Well, and the other thing is if you go on disability, you're only allowed to make a certain amount of money. So how are you actually ever going to be able to pay something like that off? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because if you, because I was in a situation, like uh, me being an optician, even like still not a livable wage, but still enough where like now I'm in a situation where I was making too much money and they basically like they cut off your monthly Hmm. benefit And then if you make too much money, they cut off your Medicare because they pop up with these premiums that you never knew that you had. Yeah. So it's like if you make too much money, then you can't, you can't ever get ahead because you're always going to either owe or have to be under a certain poverty line. I've basically, so they popped up recently with like a thousand dollar Medicare bill for premiums that I didn't know that I had. Yeah. (laughs) because I was making too much money at my job. And And so like, what's the incentive to even work? You know, like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the monthly benefit is nothing. So it's like, if I don't have a job, I'm struggling. If I have Mm -hmm. one now I'm like, and now I'm at the point where I don't have that job and I don't have that insurance that I can pay into through them anymore because of COVID. And now to talk to my expensive Beverly Hills doctors that I got on Medicare, Mm. I have to give them $200 for a 10 minute video session. Wow. Oh, this system's so broken. We're also going to talk about that more. But I I just want to dig into a little bit about your relationship with your mom, because it sounds like she stood up for you early on and helped you sort of get your diagnosis and get treatment um, and really help take care of you. Do you find that that advocacy role that she helped play for you, how has that impacted your relationship impacted your relationship? And also like, how has this changed your relationship with self as you've had to step up and learn all of these things, you know, learn what lupus is, how to treat it, how to pay for your bills, even if the system's rigged, so you can't pay them and like learn to stand up for yourself in in medical care. Like what has that whole journey been like? For like, for me and my mom, um, if anything, it actually brought us closer. Mm. Um, my mom deals with her own, uh, chronic illnesses. Like she has really bad endometriosis. And then when I was younger, she got in a car accident that gave, like now she has like a metal plate in her neck. Wow. So I got really lucky in the way that like my mom is experienced in this system. Mm. And also she's willing to yell at anybody who needs to be yelled at for me because in a lot of situations, like they, People will tell you that like you need to be nice in these situations or you need to back down sometimes because the doctor knows best. And no, I I will be the first person to tell you that there's always going to be a doctor or a nurse or somebody in this administration that needs to be yelled at. Yeah. Yeah. So for like for me, it was important for me to know when I need to stand up for myself. Mm hmm. And she was, she was really good at teaching me that. Yeah. And 
like in terms of my relationship with myself, I was, I was, it, it made me have to grow up in ways that I don't think I would have grown up until I was in my thirties. And it taught me a lot about myself. It taught me a lot about who I am as a person, what I'm willing to take, what I, what I'm willing to, what I'm willing to do to, to get things done. Uh, It taught me a lot about my relationship with people. I lost a lot of friends. Uh, It taught me just mentally where I was with mental health in the beginning, like when they were telling me all of these things about how it was just iron deficiency. Uh, They actually put me on a 5150 because I was so depressed that no one believed Mm -hmm. that I knew something was wrong with me. Wow. So I just like, I mean, there's, there's something about when you're sick and someone keeps telling you that you're not. Yeah. That just like sends you into like this deep, deep depression. Yeah, absolutely. Aside from the fact that this is a huge adjustment that you're having to make to understand your body with a new narrative. And that in and of itself requires mental health support because it's changing your perception of who you thought you would be. Right. But, and I think, sorry, mm, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 that was it. I think a lot of the time also with chronic illnesses, like people want to hear the journey. Like people want to hear how you got there. People want to hear the diagnosis because that's the exciting part. Yeah. So, but everything after that, like your day-to-day life, that's all depressing to them. Like they want the inspirational story. Mm -hmm. They don't want the, well, this is my life now story. And it's not even necessarily an inspirational story to diagnosis as we've learned, you know, like it's often really coming up against, you know, pushing the rock up the hill endlessly, you sort of become Sisyphus in your own story, don't you? You know, when you're dealing with this, not only because of the way the system's rigged, but also just because of learning your body from a whole different perspective. I mean, this is something that like, we come across on the show a lot, this idea of like heroism, right? And and disabled placement in the the hero story storyline narrative you know yeah I think it's like with Chad McBoseman well he yeah. did so much while he was so sick like it's really something to just aspire to like he did no, his he, job like everyone else does but, also, job, but. but also we need to be aware that he didn't tell anybody about it because of his job because yeah. of the stigma around illness yeah because how do we know that he couldn't have done those things if we did know? Yeah. So like we, he, there's a part of his journey that we'll never know. Yeah. But the other part of that is also how much of people's private stories should we be privileged to know? Is it any of our business? That's also a super good point because yeah. you're not obligated to share your story with anyone. Mm-mm. And when you do share your story, if you do share your story, you need to find ways to maintain control of your narrative too. You know? Yeah, like, but also you become the face of that. Yeah. 
like disease well, now. <laughs> and yeah, he's the face of colon cancer right now for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really tough one, isn't it? Because it's this weird balance of, you know, I'm not a hero for surviving. I get out of bed every day, just like everyone else. But also if I had told you, you would have judged me. And this is ableism in the world, in a world that's designed in an ableist and I mean, systemically oppressive way. If anything has taught us that it's this quarantine. (laughs) Yeah. It's this pandemic. Like I don't care how many fucking old people or how many crippled people die. Like, if I catch it, then it's whatever. Like, I just want to get it over. I've heard a lot of people say, Mm. I just want to get it over with, as though this is not something that you can keep catching. Yeah. Because we don't know that. Yeah. (laughs) Not taking into account that while you're asymptomatic, like, if you're just all willy-nilly out here, like, I'm going to just go catch it, I don't care, that also means that you're seeing other people you're seeing your friends you're seeing your family members god forbid you kiss grandma Mm. because your family doesn't give a fuck because of politics which a Mm. pandemic is not a political stance nope it's just science like climate change i think it's also that able-bodied people don't hold their health sacred because they just don't even think about it do they in the way that chronically ill people like us do that's that's a very 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 good point yeah. I it's just when you've been healthy your whole life. Thinking about your health until you're forced to feels like someone's imposing on your life. Yeah. So a lot of people are just like, well, I'm just gonna work against it. I've had a cold before. It'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> yeah. But it's so important that we figure I mean, modern diseases and modern problems and modern environments, we don't know enough about root causes and, and, yeah. uh, you know, but the bottom line is like, yeah, when you are a healthy person, unless you lose your health, you don't know how precious it is. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm sure that plays a role in your day to day, particularly during the pandemic. What is a typical day looking like for you as someone who's living with a compromised immune system, who's on immune suppressing drugs, right? How are you balancing the demands of work and life now, let alone when you were first diagnosed? as you manage potential flares and symptoms? Well, in the last few years, um, as I closely approached 30, it became clear to me that I wouldn't be able to live my life the way that I used to. Mm-hmm. Whereas like when you're 23 with lupus, you're like, well, I'm going to live normally, but with a few tweaks here and there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So like, yeah, you're still trying to like go to happy hour with your friends. Mm -hmm. And then as you get older and like your work days get longer, your body gets more tired. You're most likely not the same weight you were at 23. (laughs) Uh, So... It all becomes this, it almost feels like you have become a completely different person. Mm. Like, I feel like I'm a lot different than 
most of my friends just in the way where they were allowed to live their 20s. Yeah. You had to mature faster. Yeah. So I've had situations where like I couldn't keep jobs for long, long amounts of time because I can't stand all day or just based off of sometimes you'll end up in a situation where you have a job and you'll end up having a flare and now you have to take two weeks off, but now you have to explain why you need these two weeks off. And now you have to disclose to your employer, potentially, if you didn't already, that you're disabled. Mm. And then that becomes a whole thing. And then they will find an excuse to fire you because you're disabled. Yeah. They'll say it was attendance or they'll say that it was just, you're not good at your job. Mm. Yeah. So it becomes one of those things. And that was really the reason why it's crazy that you have to, to have a degree to like sit while you work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I feel like that's such a simple statement, but like, but it's so true. So true. <laughs> and even then sometimes you need two or three degrees. Yeah. Yeah. And so you had the less money you make, the more they work you to death. Yeah. And in the beginning, like all I had had experience in was retail. So I was doing retail. With and you're Lupus. on your feet in retail. Yeah. yeah. So I was working retail with Lupus. And like whether you're a manager or whether you're a sales associate, you're on your feet, you're running around all day. Yeah. And you're not even just that, but in the winter months and during flu season, you're exposed to a bunch of different people. Yeah. So like... When the, when the pandemic rolled around, I was already one of those people who always had hand sanitizer. And yes, like, yeah. Who traveled with masks. Always, yeah, who was always <laughs> like, oh my God, please don't talk to me, random stranger. Yeah. yeah. So for Well, me, so in some ways we were better equipped, right? Like Spoonies yeah. are better equipped for lockdown and quarantine yeah. and social distancing. But in terms of quarantine, like, I don't go anywhere... I only see my family. Yeah. Uh, I actually really randomly started dating someone during quarantine. Oh, wow. But if that's someone that you have an agreement with. Yes. That you're like, we have to keep each other's bodies safe. Like as long as you can communicate that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it actually, it turned out that she also has something chronic. So like she gets when it came to us you know, like agreeing to meet, it was like, okay, the first time we meet, let's go to a park. Yeah. Um, everybody got like COVID tests, mm-hmm. even though I haven't been anywhere in like, yeah, months. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's fair enough because you've got to look out for your health. Yeah. So it just, it's really crazy to think about like all of the things that I considered obstacles before when it came to, you know, work-life balance Mm. and how now I'm going to have to consider all of those things post-quarantine. Yeah. So you're going to have to do it all over again. Well, I mean, it's, it's really not even just that. It, it becomes a question of where can I work? Yeah. Because before like, yeah, I can go find some like whatever job, But now it's like, okay, how many people am I going to interact with daily? How long am I going to have to wear a mask as a chronically ill person as opposed to someone who has a normal But also what employer has a right 
not to offer you remote work opportunities at this point either. I mean, exactly. Mm. And that becomes a, it also becomes like in terms of school, you've been telling these disabled people forever that none of these things are possible. Yeah. And you've now done all of them. Ain't that a kick in the head? (laughs) Yeah. That's, I mean, I'm glad you bring this up because everyone I've talked to since COVID started, you know, there's been the discussion of, well, disabled people, we asked for these accommodations for generations and they were never given. Um, And suddenly they're being given with ease. But like, I've been really angry about it. And I don't think anyone else who I've talked to has been quite as like, I like worked up about it as I am, except for you at this point. I mean, you're being very (laughs) calm in your delivery, but like, I know I'm hearing it. Like it's the irony of ironies and you just want to sort of break out into Alanis Morissette over it. Like it's just so (laughs) ridiculous that this couldn't happen before when telecommuting has been a thing for the last 20 years. I mean, that was primarily the reason why I wouldn't go back to school. Yeah. It's just any school that I, I don't live in a place that's near any schools. Mm. And I don't always have the energy to wake up at 8 a.m. and travel across the city to sit in a class for two hours and then go back home across the city again. It's a lot of work. And people don't like, it's like they're, one, one of the things I said in the documentary that i probably wouldn't have said if I wasn't in the middle of a flare when the documentary was happening Mm. was uh, people don't realize how much energy it takes for us to do such small things. Yeah. So like my friend, one day I I had a week where my energy was low. Mm. And so my friend just calling me to ask me, can, do you want to go to dinner? Me just thinking about getting up, Mm. putting shoes on, walking into the restaurant, sitting down, having an engaging conversation, getting up, walking back to the car, walking back to my apartment. That much much energy made me tired even just to think about. Yeah. Like what you're saying is, and it's interesting because like you're also, this is like emotional labor, right? Like talking about this stuff and reliving this (laughs) stuff and being on pain meds. But it's like, it's also that, it takes those of us who are living with chronic illnesses and disabilities a lot of energy to do things that it takes other people small amounts of energy to do. And yeah, like those we, considerations we've are been very awarded rarely these taken super in. small luxuries that we've been asking for forever. Yes. Yeah. Like and telecommuting is no more, like there's no longer to... a, an option not to offer it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just mm. like, okay, well, you could have done this. Yeah years ago and even if you just made it something that's literally only accessible to a disabled person like you this disabled person has to go to their doctor and get a doctor's note and tell you hey i can only attend this class online even if you just even if you just did the luxury of just recording it on audio Mm. for someone that could have like made the difference in whether somebody gets a degree or not yeah and that also, then that becomes a question of like ableism, yeah, and then class and the bare minimum, yeah. And it's that it's also the bare minimum, like what we're getting now in terms of accommodation is barely scratching the surface of the bare minimum. Yeah, that there's so much work still to be done. Still, 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering, I mean, you mentioned that very early on in this conversation, I was like, how many people told you it was all in your head, you know, and, and that your relationships have shifted since you've gotten your diagnosis. Have you been in situations or can you talk to us about the situations you have been in, I should say, where you have been forced to validate the existence of your symptoms or diagnosis to people who didn't understand it because they literally couldn't see it? That like, because you're living with this invisible diagnosis, you had to validate yourself for other people? I had a friend who was very adamant about the fact that if I became vegan <laughs> and started eating oh, and started doing like a certain smoothie every mm. day. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. That I could cure my lupus and wow. like I was having chemo. I was having a really bad flare and I was having chemo at the time. And uh, she said, but why are they giving you chemo? And so I'm trying trying to explain it to her, like the reasons why they're doing it, how I'm having a really bad flare. And she's like, I don't know. It just seems sus. Like, it seems like they're just like pumping chemicals into your body for no reason. And I'm like, so blueberries would be better. (laughs) And I'm trying to like make her understand that like chemo is the last resort for a doctor. Yeah. They don't want to do it. I've had doctors tell, look me in the face and tell me, I don't want to do this. And you're also someone who has faced your mortality. Yeah. You know, like, I doubt your friend who was encouraging vegan smoothies had ever been in a situation where her, the future of her existence was put into question, but you've literally been there. It's, it's really, I was actually thinking about it, like, as we were on the preface of this interview, uh, I think it was yesterday. Because it is, like you said, it is, it is emotional labor to talk about these things. And it does kind of put me in a place where I do have to go through the history of my story all over again. And there was a time where, like, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So when thinking about that, I started thinking, like, you are a person, you are one of those rare people who had a near-death experience. Mm. And it doesn't, until I really like think about it or say it out loud, like I've never thought of on just a psychological scale how that changes a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've never, like I've, I've been to therapy and like I typically just talk about living with lupus, but I've, there's a part of me that's like scared to address that. Yeah. I really appreciate you being open about where you're at with that, because I think it's a really good point you make that people often come on the show as well and they've gone through that emotional journey, right. You know, or at least some big part of the emotional journey as you have, right. Where much has been faced, which is why we can talk about it. But there is definitely stuff that we're all still working on facing every day. And I think, you know, the mortality piece, that's a really big one. And as someone who has been in your position, did you also ever have doctors say, here's some mental health support? Yeah. You've knocked on death's door. We'd like to offer you therapy. (laughs) 
Well, they actually, there was one day where I like flipped out and told them that no one could touch me. And so they like, the doctor walked in, like shoved in, shoved some Ativan into my arm. And then uh, another doctor came in when I had finally woken up. And I want to say for at least six months, they would send a doctor into the room and ask, like, am I being abused at home? Uh, Do I No, I'm being abused here. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean... Do I have something like going on in my life that makes me like this? And I'm looking around. I'm like, I'm in a hospital. What do you mean? Do I have something in my life? Well, I mean, this sort of leads me into my next question, because I'm wondering what part of their bias that came from, because your experience in the healthcare system, you are a queer woman of color. And I'm wondering how much of your identity you think has played into the way others have treated you because the idea that you are someone who stands up for what you need to stand up for now as soon as you told me that I thought I bet she gets the angry black woman thing from people you know like how often is that happening to you and do you think that your experiences would have been different if you presented differently as male as white as something other than what you are which is wonderful, by the way. Why <laughs> you are as wonderful and screw anyone who doesn't think so. But, you know, like, this is the reality. The, the most discrimination I faced being the angry Black woman is mostly at work. Oh, interesting. Um, which is... Uh, <laughs> A problem in and of itself. It, that's an issue, but then also it does affect how I deal with uh, my doctors. Sure. And during this whole situation, I want to say like since I was diagnosed, I have also been dealing since that very first flare, that very Mm. first serious flare, um, I have chronic back pain. Mm. And in the beginning, it was a matter of, in the beginning, they didn't really want to give me anything. Well, but first they, they thought it was still, in your head and then they well, sedated they were, you. Actually, well, I want to, well, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. she must have been hysterical. <laughs> I mean, you know, like this is, this is the narrative about women in the healthcare so then, system. Finally, I got a doctor um, of color. It was a woman mm. of color. So she yeah. was like, let me prescribe you some pain pills. Hmm. And she was the first doctor who had agreed to give them to me. Wow. And uh, I'm lucky in the way where I'm obviously, like, I'm light-skinned, I'm mixed race. Hmm. And a lot of the time that does work in my favor when it comes to certain doctors. Hmm. For the vast majority, though, I'm still a Black woman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, regardless of being black, I'm a woman of color, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I've dealt with doctors who didn't listen to me. Yeah. I've dealt with doctors who were blatantly rude to me. I dealt with it in the beginning, I was really thin. And mm-hmm. then as I gained weight and as I became overweight, then it became, well, your pain would probably stop if you lost weight. How, how would you like me to do that? also don't comment on my body unless you live in it I mean yeah so then that became like a a different set of issues because 
then I have to explain to doctors all of these same issues that I have right now, I had when I was thin. Mm. So you can't tell me that these are things that are happening because of my weight. Yeah. Like, sure, yes, of course, I, I would gladly lose weight if that was something that was easy for me. Mm. But also, if, if everything that I was doing while I was thin, I'm still doing now, and I'm still experiencing the same things, how do you know that my health would change? <laughs> so then Because it I'm biased, of, and this is my opinion. Yeah. And yeah. then it becomes a question of, like, how are... <laughs> now you're just like now you're just fat phobic like that's that's just where we are like and most doctors are yeah so i'll use an example of oh okay 2014 i was working downtown Hmm. i was two years into my lupus diagnosis Hmm. and i started having these crazy gastrointestinal pains Hmm. And so at this, for the first five years of any illness, as I'm sure you know, the first five years are the worst. Hmm. And so I was in and out of hospitals. I had like very obvious IV bruises, which (laughs) everyone knows what an IV bruise looks like. Well, some people don't and those (laughs) people are wrong, but yeah. (laughs) So it had gotten to the point where my pain was so bad that I was literally like laid out on the floor Mm. and like couldn't move yeah so they took me to presbyterian in downtown la and uh i had this nurse and she just kept like pestering me with all these questions Mm. and i keep trying to explain like i'm not responding to her because i'm literally in so much pain i can't speak And she grabs my arm and she sees my bruises and she's like, are you on drugs? Oh my God. She's a nurse. And I'm looking at her and then I just like stopped responding to her. Was she also a white woman? No. She was a Latina woman. Oh, interesting. Okay. So she was also uh, a woman of color, but she still had mm, her own prejudices. Yes. Mm. So, and that was, my grandma happened to call me and my grandma is older, but she was a registered nurse for 45 years. Mm. And in very rare instances in my life, have I ever heard or seen my grandmother visibly fuming. Mm. And that was one of the few times my grandma actually got up and came to the hospital because she was like, I cannot fucking believe that this nurse would have the audacity to ask you if you're on drugs. Yeah. Cause, and she, Oh, she was so angry. And Mm. I like, I felt validated because a part of me was like, well, I do have these bruises on my arm. You gaslit yourself. Yeah. I'm like, maybe they do look like track marks. I am downtown. I don't know. Yeah. But if this woman had looked at your chart, she would have known that you had lupus and had been on various treatments. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> and do you think that, like if you, if you'd been in that situation as male or presenting as a, a white person, do you think that you would have had the same questions? No. Yeah, no. exactly. Yeah. I went to Cedars recently 
I want to say six months ago, um, cause I was in a lot of pain and I felt like I was having a really bad flare and I sat there for three hours mm. in that bed. No one gave me any medication in that three hours. So I'm basically sitting there crying. Yeah. And then here comes, they wheel in the old white lady yeah. into the bed next to me. And she's talking about how her wrist hurts really bad. <laughs> and are they going to give her something for her pain? Oh, my God. And 20 minutes later, the man comes in with some dilated. And you're still waiting. Yep. Would you I'm say that this, this, I mean, gender, racial, um, even body image related inequality in the healthcare system is a public health crisis? Yeah. Yeah. What? There was a TikTok of this woman showing her nurse book mm. that said, it said in her book, mm that black people feel less pain. Are you for real? No, I'm I'm not joking. That's And we know that this is this is pseudoscience. Like it's made up bullshit. It, that's a holdover yeah, it, from It's literally slavery. made the fuck up. It's literally yeah. made the fuck up. I can't believe textbooks have that kind of information. The textbook them. says black people feel less pain. So we are teaching systemic racism. Yes, they're teaching it. They're teaching it. And I feel it when I see certain doctors. I had a doctor. I was admitted into the hospital last year because my doctor wanted me to have some tests done. Mm. So I was there overnight. I was telling them, hi, like you're supposed to give me the pills that I get when I'm not here. Mm. That's the rule. But they wouldn't give me the one, the two Percocets that I take a day. Wow. And so they sent me a doctor. They sent me a nephrologist because I have a kidney. I have lupus nephritis also. Wow. So they sent me the kidney doctor. Kidney doctor said, he's this older white man, works at Cedars. uh, And he walked in and immediately started giving me a speech on the opioid crisis. Oh, my. Oh, me. Oh, my. Yeah. What a charmer. He gave me a 20-minute speech on the opioid crisis. So, and then, so my rheumatologist that I see now, uh, her name is Dr. Scaramangus. She works with Dr. Ventura Polly, the famous uh, rheumatologist. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, so I go to his clinic. Well, I used to before I lost my health insurance. Mm. And uh, she walked, she's also a woman of color. So she walked in the next morning and she's talking to me. She's literally leaned over my body, taking my vitals. Mm. And this same white man walks in and just starts talking at both of us. And so her whole face changes as she's leaned over me and she stops and she turns around and she's like, who are you? That's amazing. (laughs) I love her for you. I love this. (laughs) I love this journey for you. This is great. <laughs> wow. Screw that guy. And so she, he stops and he's like, who are you? And she's <laughs> like, can we, can we talk outside? Yeah. And so they go outside and they have, I think she was gone for maybe like 10, 15 minutes. I don't know what was said. Uh, she comes back in and she's like, so you won't be seeing that man anymore. Oh, how wonderful. And like from that That's moment That's what on, real medicine yeah, looks like. Yes. That's what... 
it looks like to stand up for your patients. From that moment on, I was like, I ride for this doctor. Yeah. I will never leave her. Yeah. She's with me for life. Yeah. Because she's stood I, up for you. Yeah. I had to pop off on that office the other day because they had me apply for this. They want me to, she wants me to get retuction, retuxin. Hmm. And I applied to this foundation that gives them to you for free. Hmm. Uh, and so they approved me. And but turns out that that doesn't cover the actual office visit fee. Oh, great. Yeah. So when they called me and told me that, I just said, we'll cancel my appointment. Hmm. So then another lady calls. I kid you not. This lady's name was Becky. <laughs> no, 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 no. It wasn't Becky. Her name was Karen. Oh, even better. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not. This lady's name was Karen. Oh, I'm man. sorry, Karen. If you ever hear this, Karen, you about to get roasted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Karen calls me and she tries to tell me that, you know, they, ha- they got the medicine from the foundation, but they can't do anything with it. So they can't send it to Cedars for me to get charity care and get the infusion there because the foundation already sent it directly to them. So there's no way for them to transfer it or to send it back. Well, that doesn't make sense. So I'm like, that sounds like a y'all problem. Yeah. <laughs> Not like a me problem. <laughs> and she's like, this just so that, you know, we're in a, like, it's a conundrum because like, we can't give you the medication. She's like, so I'm just wondering, can I set you up with a payment plan? Like, can I have, can you I have your to- money? Can I have you, can I have you apply to these foundations to see if they'll pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, all right, go ahead and hit me with the amount of this visit. Mm. Keep in mind, I have to have one, then I have to have another one in two weeks. And then these are continuous, maybe like two times a year. And she says it's $600. (laughs) And I started laughing. Yeah. I no. literally started laughing. And she's like, well, I mean, it's usually 2000 And I'm like... Neither <laughs> of those are good numbers when you've applied for something for free because you can't afford it, period. So I'm telling her, I'm like, that doesn't make me feel better. No. So then she's... So then I'm like, I can't pay for that. I can't. I can't keep telling you guys this. Yeah. And so it turns into one of these things where she is now telling me that she's just calling me to help me. Oh. But it seems like I'm really irritated. Well, you know shit. So I tell her, let me tell you something. Let me tell you the situation that I'm in. I am a black woman Mm. with a chronic illness I have just lost my job. Mm. I just lost my health insurance. And now you're calling me, asking me for money that I yeah. don't have. Yeah. So you tell me why I seem irritated. Good for you. So she's just like, well, let me talk to Dr. V. Like, let me see what he says. Yada, yada, yada. She calls me 15 minutes later. And she says that Dr. Ventura Polly told her that we could do it for free. Then why did she even call you in the first place? 
That's like, my question. Yeah, so, that, is a, that is a y'all problem. It's like, <laughs> why, why do you need me to chime in on how I don't have the money to pay for this and you need to work it out? So brought that up to say that same doctor, Dr. Scaravengas, mm. who popped off on this other doctor for me, she called me personally mm. to say, it seems like you've been going back and forth a lot. So I just wanted to personally check in with you and like, you know, tell you like how this is going to go. And like it. She's amazing. Yes. I hated paying that $200. Sure. But it's like the fact that she's calling you herself. But now here's how it's like, she's, yeah, yeah, she's removing uncertainty. Yeah, like the thought of me seeing any other doctor, mm-hmm. knowing all of the traumatic things that I've experienced before. Yeah. Like it it truly it truly breaks my heart that like I can't see her. And it just it brings to the forefront like all the times that I've been told that I wasn't in pain, how yeah. careful I have to be. In literally every single situation I've ever had to ask for painkillers just so they won't put in my chart potential drug seeker. Yeah. Like everything I phrase has to be specifically phrased. And I even tell this to all of my Black friends. Mm. Don't ever walk into a doctor's office and specifically ask for a certain painkiller. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even if you know that it's the one that works, even if you know that every other one gives you a migraine, even if you know that any other one will cause some type of reaction, it doesn't matter. You have to let them run down the list until you say, oh, well, that one usually works. Well, and it's, you have to make it look like it's their idea and not yours. You have to pander to this racist ideology that persists throughout the system. Yeah. But with my white friends, it's like, oh, I got a sprained ankle. So my doctor gave me some Vicodin. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I have to like break somebody's leg to get some Vicodin. And Vicodin is like the fucking like lowest class of mm. like opioid you can get to. Not to mention the fact that the opioid crisis itself is a problem that was created by white people because it was created by the CEOs of Big Pharma. Like, right. let's be real about that. Right. <laughs> right. It's a vicious, vicious cycle. And I it's mean, like, how, but why does that have to, like, what does that have to do with me yeah. when you guys were never trying to give me the painkillers that lead to that addiction in the first place? Yeah. Like, you're automatically labeling me as a drug addict. Like, with me and my painkillers, like, I, I cannot be on them. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah, it sucks. And yeah, I'm in a lot of pain, but like, I'm not on painkillers today. Mm. So aside from the Lyrica, which is like a nerve situation. So like, I can go weeks without being on these things, but like, I have to consistently worry about, okay, when I have this high pain day and I need these Percocets, how how do I go about getting them? How do I go about asking for them? How do I explain to this doctor that even if I don't take them all the time, I need to have them on retainer? Yeah. 
So, or what about that six months where I was just in excruciating pain all the time? How do I and get that's my where doctor? That, that continuity of care, if you yeah. could make that happen outside of the health insurance system, yeah, you wouldn't have to deal with that worry now, which is an additional stressor and stresses cause flares, you know, um, that's, yeah. it's a, I mean, how are you going to win in any of these situations? Yeah. I mean, I'm also wondering, like, we're talking about a lot of shitty things about the healthcare system because it's largely shitty here, especially if you have chronic illness and if you are representing a minority in any way, shape or form. But I'm wondering, is there anything good about the healthcare system? Like, has there been any part of the experience that you've had that has worked for you in any way? Or do you think it's, it, there doesn't have to be, or do you think that the whole thing needs to like be burnt down and rebuilt? I, I think it works the same way the police works. And I think yeah. you just kind of burn the whole thing to the We need to burn ground. it down. I would agree with um, you. But I would say the, the only redeeming quality is that just having done this for, just having been in doing this for eight years, I saw the craziest transition from when I went from Medi-Cal to when I was put on Medicare. Because Medicare opens that door to all the doctors that you didn't even think existed. So I originally got Medicare in 2016 and it allowed me to really be out here looking for the doctors that are the best at what they do. Yeah. And I lucked up that I literally lived down the street from Attune Health, which mm-hmm. is on Robertson and uh, Wilshire. And I had obviously heard of Dr. Ventura Pali. Like when I was first diagnosed with lupus, I went to the lupus conference that they have every year and he was a speaker there. And since that moment, I was like, if I can ever have him as a doctor, he's going to be my doctor. And like, obviously, I'm one of the few people that are blessed to one, live in LA and to be able to have that opportunity to see a doctor like that. And being in the situation now where I don't have those same luxuries anymore, unless I go ahead and drop this $1,500, it scares me because I know what it's like to not have health insurance. And I know what it's like to be placed under the Medi-Cal system and what kind of care you get under that Medi-Cal system. It's garbage. I wonder whether based on everything we've talked about today and and your eight years of experience now living with lupus, if you have like your top three tips, if someone were to call you and ask you for advice tomorrow, what would be the top three things that you would offer as advice for someone who's living like you with a chronic illness, with a disability? Number one is definitely learn what your rights are as a patient. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number two, always know that you can fire your doctor. Mm. Yeah. And number three, which is actually a tip that I learned from the internet. (laughs) That was a, that was a thread on how to get your doctor to pay attention to you. Mm. Anything that your doctor declines to give you, Mm. 
tell them, put that in the chart that they declined it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Because in a lot of situations, they don't want to put that in your chart that they said no. Reflects poorly on them. Yeah. Yep. It's a challenge to the ego, I think, there. What mm-hmm. about if if you really need to fill yourself back up, if you're having, you know, if you're in a flare, if you're feeling frustrated with the system, if you're um, having a rough go of it, what are three things that you turn to for joy to light you up? And these can be like guilty pleasures or secret indulgences or comfort activities, but they can also just be like the good shit that you cultivate in your life <laughs> to keep you going. I listen to a lot of music. Hmm. If I'm really sad, I watch old NSYNC videos. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> That's some inspo right there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, bye bye bye. bye. <laughs> Cause I'm like a crazy. Don't tell the black people I'm a crazy Justin Timberlake fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know now. <laughs> you just have uh, it yourself. It's, it's not a secret. It's not a secret. <laughs> I feel like I watched one of your stories the other day, and you were playing Justin Timberlake. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then also. I, I smoke a lot of weed. Mm. And uh, I mean, it's mostly, great to be in California for that. Yeah, because mostly it really became a question, like living in California, even my doctors, my pain management doctors were like, you should just think about smoking weed. I think in many ways it's better for you. It's less processed. It's like, yeah. it's a plant. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so oof. I just became a marijuana advocate. Yep. So Love it. <laughs> So. No better time in the world than to be a marijuana advocate right now, I think. <laughs> and then also, I'm really blessed uh, in the way where I have a very tight friend group. Mm. Like, I have people that I've known since I was in high school that mm. I am still friends with. And, like, they are totally down to just sit around with me all day and just like talk or watch a movie or yeah. do absolutely nothing. And they get so, it. They're not the ones that yeah. the left. They're the ones left. Yeah. Well, and the ones that leave, it's like, we don't need them anyway, <laughs> you know, but like, yeah, yeah. these are right yeah. guys. So I'm like really, just really lucky. Cause I know there are people who don't have that. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm just really lucky that I have like these two or three friends who just are willing to listen and they're super supportive. will sit in the ER with me yeah. if they have to. One of them will advocate for me if I'm like, I really just don't feel well. Hmm. Uh, and they are well aware of my situation and hmm. like, just, yeah, I have the best friends and I will like talk them up until I die. <laughs> mm, that's amazing. And I'm sure they would for you too. Yeah. What is your ask for listeners who are tuning in today? What can they do to support you and the lupus community in the work that you're doing for yourself, but also in this wider <laughs> discussion that we're having? I think it's really just a matter of just educating yourself on chronic illness in general mm. and being aware of invisible illnesses because mm-hmm. I mean, for all intents and purposes, when you see me on the street, I look normal. Yeah. So just, it's really being aware 
supporting places like Lupus LA who do like really small things. Like I recently found out that they actually have a program where they give a $500 grant to patients who need help paying for a medication or just paying for a procedure or anything. Uh, They do fundraisers. I super encourage people to volunteer Mm. at any, like any foundation that has specifically an illness that you know about. (laughs) Like that's a way to engage with the community. Yeah. And Mm. I encourage people to speak up about healthcare in America because if enough people are angry about it, then they have to change it. Well, we've been angry about it for a while. Well, <laughs> they have no, to change it. It, it might be it's slow. A matter, it's a matter of the right people being angry about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, that has to do with voting, doesn't it? Like, we all have to It has to do with anything. Yeah. Like, me, I can speak about racial injustice all day, but if the white people don't care, why the fuck are they going to listen to me? But that's why this is so important is that, like, the whole point of this conversation is that, like, everyone needs to care about this shit. Mm-hmm. Everyone care about black people everyone needs to care about you know queer people everyone needs to care about women everyone needs to care about the state of medicine yeah everyone needs to care about justin timberlake and nobody needs to care about karen (laughs) and it's really also everyone should know that like a lot of the black people that are killed by police are disabled yeah i believe it's something like 50 percent yeah it's a very high percentage. Yeah. So it. Part of that is also about understanding that like disability is normal, that like disability is mm-hmm. a normal. When you look at the statistics on disability and chronic illness in the U.S., I mean, we know that there are roughly 150 million people living in the U.S. who are living with chronic illness, and that's the people who are diagnosed that's a huge portion of the population. So if we're not making the world accessible to those of us who have those additional needs, then what the hell are we doing it for? It's really just, it all comes down to capitalism, doesn't it? Yeah. Like if you can't work, then you're not worthy of like having a life to live. Mm -hmm. If you can't earn money, if you can't pay for things, then like, why do you exist? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you're not able-bodied, then that means you're not able to work and that intrinsically makes you worthless. Hmm. How do you change the narrative for yourself? How have you learned to shift that narrative? I actually used to and still do, I think, battle with that a lot Hmm. um, because it is it is a shock to your system that you went from sort of having the world as your oyster at 22 to becoming this person who now has all of these disabilities and these, I can't do that. And I'm sure that there are people out there who accomplish amazing things while having really shitty situations. Um, Unfortunately, those are, one in a million Hmm. situations and it really came down to me like one seeking therapy for those things Hmm. um to really attempting to I think when this whole thing blew up with Black Lives Matter earlier in quarantine 
after the murder of George Floyd. And as performative as some of these things were, um, it led to a lot of promotion of like black Instagrams that promote self-care and wellness and making you feel like you are entitled to like your own well-being like you're entitled to take a nap today yep or you don't always have to be someone who has to be doing something constantly and that's the problem that we've been all having in this situation is we feel like we're not doing anything and so we feel like we're not worth anything Hmm. and our worth is not tied to our ability to work constantly Hmm. And that is probably an unlearning that I'll have to experience for the rest of my life. Hmm. Well, I, I hope it gets easier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I hope that's, I hope that's something that becomes more and more second nature. And I, I agree with you. I mean, it's interesting. I've also like my Instagram has gotten populated with more of those feeds too. And I think it's a really wonderful celebration of mm-hmm. finding black joy and of, being able as an ally for those of us who are learning to be allies, learning to be better allies, to find ways to promote that for other people. And the fact that, you know, in all of this discussion, while a lot of it comes down to capitalism, a lot of what's behind capitalism comes down to whether or not you care about other people. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So what is next for you, Ben, do you think in this, in this wellness journey, you know, as you're, doing the deep dive on some of those Insta feeds, which can be really wonderful. This is one of the great things about social media. It's like yeah. <laughs> free mental health tips and Finding stuff. other people like you. <laughs> well, I, I hope, I hope I'm making some dent, you know, but it's like, <laughs> I can't do anything without talking to people like you and being able to like, you know, keep a platform like this going. I thank you for having me again. This oh has been, it's always nice and therapeutic to talk about it, you know? Yeah. And that's, I also try to tell people that talk about it. Yeah. It's good for you. Yeah. (laughs) As long as you're like ready, like when you're ready, you don't have to rush those things, but like when you're ready Mm -hmm. to do it, to do it can be a really positive thing. Yeah, Mm. for sure. Well, thank you again. Thank you. (laughs) That's it folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.